What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Prodigy is a production of iHeartRadio. This episode might be a bit chaotic, but given the subject, I think it might be appropriate. Last season of Prodigy, I did an episode on ADHD where I told my story, and the response really surprised me. It resonated with people. I even had listeners get diagnosed after, and we'll hear from one of them later. So my friend has been treated for depression for the last 15 years. She got diagnosed with bipolar just six months ago because one doctor finally decided to test her and realized what it actually was. Disorders have symptoms that cross over, yet doctors are sometimes just throwing out guesses based on short conversations. This is why testing is so critical. While this episode is about ADHD specifically, I think the underlying message really applies to most disorders. There's a ton of people out there who are undiagnosed or misdiagnosed. The U.S. healthcare system especially is terrible. It's expensive, difficult to navigate, and non-uniform. I got a physical at my primary care doctor six months ago, and a few weeks later, a bill showed up from the testing company for $1,700. I filed a complaint with the Better Business Bureau, and the company knocked it down to 50 bucks. Wait, like, what are their margins? How could they reduce the cost by that much from a complaint and still be profitable? It's a scam. Even with criminal costs, ADHD is not easy to get diagnosed and treated for. The main reason is that the primary and most effective treatment is a controlled substance. Adderall. It's an amphetamine, which is a central nervous system stimulant that treats the chemicals and nerves that contribute to hyperactivity and impulsivity. Since ADHD has hyperactivity in the name, it's commonly associated with excessive energy or fidgeting. That doesn't sound so bad. But in reality, it's impulsivity. That's the inability to control your thoughts and actions. That's pretty damn important for functioning in society. Your doctor might be skeptical or even consider you a drug seeker. This is especially challenging when a common symptom of the disorder is substance abuse. It's actually self-medicating and creates the dilemma. 
Your brain is overloaded with thoughts and you want to calm them. If people want to cheat the system to get stimulants, let them. They're probably suffering and need treatment too. But even so, that's no excuse for skepticism. We need to encourage people to assess and address their mental health, not criminalize it. Disorders like ADHD are the silent killer. You don't need a straitjacket, but you can't achieve your potential. You exist in limbo between what you could be and what you are. There's a pervasive belief that ADHD is overdiagnosed, especially in children and adolescents, but in adults as well. The main argument for this is the fact that more people are diagnosed now than they were in the past. However, there isn't sufficient research to show exactly why it's more common now. But it seems pretty obvious to me. We understand it better and can recognize it easier. In my parents' generation, ADHD simply wasn't a thing. Those parents raised children who they also believe don't have ADHD. I got tested when I was 14, and the results said I probably had ADHD. My parents didn't understand it, and I don't blame them for it. But my adolescence was a mess. I barely made it out alive. It altered the trajectory of my life. At 35, I got diagnosed and medicated, and it vastly improved my life. Yet I am constantly presented with the notion that the medication is bad and my disorder isn't valid. Even today, I've gone nine days without it because the pharmacy was out. Then my doctor was out. Then the next pharmacy was out. I can't even call the pharmacy to see if they have it in stock before telling my doctor where to call it in. It's not allowed for some reason. People without ADHD who have taken a stimulant like Adderall feel basically jacked. Like they've done a bunch of cocaine. They go and alphabetize their book collection. But when you take it consistently, you don't get that feeling. It just helps you operate closer to what society expects. For people who need it, it's like a life jacket when you're drowning. And if you have ADHD, it's incredibly likely that one of your parents does too. And every person with ADHD that I've ever talked to about that says, Oh my god, my dad immediately, like, no, like, instant reaction. There's no hesitation, and there isn't for me either. Women have an even harder time. Minorities are far less diagnosed. Is it because other ethnicities have less disorders? No. They just have a greater barrier to healthcare. This episode is about ADHD and what to do if you think you might have it. If it helps one person, then it's worth it. My name is Lowell Berlanti, and this is Prodigy. Dr. Jeremy Sharp is a licensed psychologist who has managed assessment clinics for over a decade. Now he's a speaker and consultant for a variety of organizations regarding mental health. He's incredibly qualified to answer these questions about ADHD and the testing process. And since I went off so much in the beginning, I should probably add the disclaimer that just because he's on this episode doesn't necessarily mean he agrees with all my opinions. Diagnosis of ADHD still comes down to what behaviors someone can observe in another individual, right? We don't have any brain scans or blood tests or anything like that to to diagnose ADHD. So keep that in mind as we talk through this. But generally speaking, the diagnostic criteria say that, you know, ADHD is a persistent pattern of inattention and hyperactivity or impulsivity that interferes with functioning or development. So that's great. That's a nice general 
definition. More at the, the neurological level, I mean, we think that the brain structures involved in ADHD are, you know, there's a lot happening in the frontal lobes, uh, which is that uh, kind of command center of the brain that plays a large role in self-regulation and impulse control and things like that. Uh, there's some implication of the basal ganglia and the cerebellum. But generally speaking, yeah, it's this combination of inattention and hyperactivity or impulsivity that causes significant impairment in people's lives. After the ADHD and me episode I did a while back, one of the listeners that reached out to me told me it made them realize that they might have ADHD as well. Her name is Leslie Kiembo. I should also mention that Leslie lives in Canada, and unfortunately, your experience may vary based on location. So when I first heard your episode, I had felt a lot of relief. Things that you had mentioned I had connected with. People tend to think of it just as hyperactivity, like can't focus. Mm -hmm. But impulsivity... How does that relate to hyperactivity? Yeah, I mean, I see both of those kind of on the continuum of holding back or regulating your behavior, right? So that that filter uh, that exists in our brains that says, hey, maybe don't do that right now. But you're right. I mean, hyperactivity, I think, gets a lot of attention, especially uh, with with kids when they're younger, because that's what people can can see. It's the the fidgeting or the getting up or the, you know, constantly moving around or the jumping on the couch. You know, it's all that kind of stuff. So it's it's very in your face. Impulsivity comes into play, especially as ADHD kids sort of grow into ADHD adults. So that's a big component here too, you know, and that's like interrupting other people or getting that tattoo without really thinking it through or (laughs) um, buying that car that looks amazing, but maybe doesn't match your bank account. You know, it's those behaviors get a lot more prevalent, I think, as kids get older. Interrupting people, I feel like, is a pretty big one. Definitely. I'm always concerned uh, I'm going to forget it if I don't get it out fast enough or finishing someone else's sentences, stuff like that. Right, right. Yeah, that's a common thing that, uh, or a reason that, that people give is, um, you know, there's just so much going on in my brain. I have to blurt it out or I have to interrupt or it's going to go away. So I feel like the misconceptions about it are huge. Maybe possibly because, it, you know, it's called hyperactivity disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, I think even my parents don't even fully believe that I have it. Um, And I feel like this is probably super common with people. Uh, What, like, misconceptions do you often see about ADHD? That's a great question. Um, One is, like, a lot of people say that just because they're forgetful, like, you know, you, I'm sure you've heard those those people like, oh, I'm so forgetful. I, I just had an ADD moment, you know, or something like that. So this gets to your point that it's not just one specific, like, small dimension of functioning. Like, just being forgetful doesn't, doesn't mean you have ADHD. Um, like, people are naturally forgetful, you know, that's normal. One of the biggest misconceptions that I also see is this idea that it's very widespread. I think people overestimate the prevalence you know, to, for someone to really have ADHD, theoretically, you know, they should be more impaired than about 90 to 95% of the population. The other misconception is that ADHD does not persist into adulthood. And we have some pretty good information now that it, it really does. So adult ADHD is a, is a thing that we need to be concerned about and, and really looking into. Yeah. And I think People tend to dismiss it as not that serious, but I mean, if you really think about it, inattention, if I'm unable to get things into my working memory, then I'm unable to sort of 
like learn new things, which is kind of important. Oh, it's super important. Yeah. Not to mention, I mean, yeah, you give the example of learning new things. That's really important as we get older. Um, but I think about too, just holding on to the things that we need to hold on to. So when to pay your bills, um, due dates, um, work meetings, things like that, just uh, all the things that we keep track of. There's a big impact in adulthood. If you get a diagnosis, then you know, and you can work with possibly what a therapist to develop strategies for dealing with some of those inadequacies or like deficiencies. Yeah, definitely. We have um, really two main directions for treatment if you want to go either route. So, you know, there's medication, of course. I think most people, you know, for better or for worse, are familiar with Ritalin, Adderall, you know, and all the variations thereof to, to treat it from a medication standpoint. But therapy-wise, yeah, we have some nice research-supported interventions um, that you could do in therapy or coaching. You know, sometimes people do ADHD coaching instead of therapy. You know, that person would work with you on skills like time management, organization, planning, problem-solving, um, skills that we have to use in day-to-day -day life. Great. And so something I just I've been thinking is that uh, maybe calling it executive function disorder might be a more accurate term for it. Yeah, you're not alone. That's for sure. Um, there's a, a a big contingent, I think, of our field and the medical field that uh, would get on board with that. I think we are we're just learning more and more about ADHD as time goes on and we get more sophisticated um, means of looking at what the brain is up to, you know, and physiological indicators and things like that. I would not be surprised if we see that shift down the road a little ways and, and change the language a bit. But yeah, executive functioning is a is a huge part of ADHD. Um, now, the trouble with that is that executive functioning is also a big part of um, just day-to-day -day life, and it overlaps with uh, several other uh, mental health diagnoses or medical diagnoses. Like your executive functioning could be impaired uh, if you were anxious or depressed or, of course, you know, had dementia or, you know, autism, like it comes up in a lot of different contexts. Um, so we'd have to do a really good job of, of kind of defining it. But yeah, there's, there's a big push for the, the role of executive functioning in ADHD and learning more about that. In 2019, that's when I first started noticing these symptoms of ADHD. I was getting some panic attacks in the year and it was you know, baffling to me because I had gone to the emergency department and they would tell me, Leslie, you're having panic attacks. There's nothing physically wrong with you. You need to learn how to relax. I noticed all of this kept coming up and I went to my doctor after figuring out it could be ADHD and he was kind of dismissive, you know, telling me, oh, you know what, come back another time. I got the inkling that, you know, one, he wasn't so interested or concerned and two, that he wasn't so well versed in ADHD as well. So to give him that benefit of the doubt, I guess, you know, maybe he didn't know as much about it either. I think not all general practitioners know too much about ADHD. Like, what would you say to somebody or what would you suggest someone say to somebody? Let's say they have ADHD, they've been diagnosed or they strongly believe they have it. And the person says, doesn't think ADHD is like a serious thing. They're just like, oh, it's like, you know, it's nothing basically. Oh, gosh. That's a that's a great question. My goodness. Um it depends. So I would probably go the route of, uh, you know, just showing some good, hard science to say, uh, of course, this is a thing. We know a lot about it. Here's what it is. Here's what it means. Um, I would also, and this is the, you can 
totally I'm a psychologist, I would probably turn it back on them and say, uh, what makes you think that? Or, you know, what have you read? Like, I would try to learn more about their experience that they would um, feel compelled to deny my experience. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then get a better understanding of why they think what they think. So you can address that directly. Right. Right. Because, you know, I'm sure they have some reason to think that maybe they've read something or seen something or maybe they're just in denial or who knows what it might be, but that at least opens up the conversation and then I can share anything that might be relevant with them. All right, let's take a quick mental health break. Be right back. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast growing health and wellness industry with an education that empowers communities. Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbionica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbionica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O. T-I-K-A Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Welcome back to Prodigy. For more info, visit the episode page at ProdigyPodcast.com. I was curious, like, what some of the symptoms are that maybe if someone's experiencing, it might be an indicator of ADHD. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Would you like to talk more adult or? So if we could maybe just address adolescence and up. Okay, so generally speaking, you know, I mentioned earlier there, we look at symptoms in kind of two camps. There's the inattentive set of symptoms and there's the hyperactive impulsive set of symptoms. Um, Just speaking to the inattentive side, I mean, this is things like just not paying close attention to detail. It's trouble actually focusing and sustaining attention. Um, It's not listening when people are talking to you. Uh, It's being disorganized. It's losing things frequently. It's being forgetful. So those are a bunch of inattentive symptoms. Um, I think those are relevant in adolescence and adulthood. Now, as far as hyperactivity and impulsivity, I think this is where things get a little more uh, nuanced, where uh, we think that hyperactive impulsive symptoms are more present when kids are younger. So, you know, that's, like I said earlier, the fidgeting, the like getting out of your seat, the the running and the climbing and the jumping, just being, you know, talking, blurting out, that sort of stuff. But what we think is that as kids get older and then, you know, shift into adults, of course, the hyperactive behaviors and the impulsivity uh, change a bit and kind of morph more into what looks like inattention. Um, so, you know, inattentive symptoms tend to um, tend to get more significant as as kids get older and grow into adults. But then, 
there's this whole other set of kind of soft signs of adult ADHD or, you know, older adolescent ADHD that, you know, that aren't in the diagnostic manual, but uh, are still things to pay attention to. So just the experience of, say, working really hard, but not getting much done, or um, it takes, you know, double the amount of time to be as productive as your peers, um, blanking out or, you know, forgetting important information, um, bad driving. So, you know, a lot of speeding tickets, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, rolling stop signs, stuff like that, uh, being late frequently, not being able to finish projects, um, impulsive spending, um, what else? High caffeine intake sometimes, you know, so those are, those are some of the, the soft signs that, uh, adults might notice that aren't necessarily going to be in the diagnostic manual, but, uh, but certainly could be an indicator of ADHD. Yeah, it really feels like it affects pretty much every part of my life. Mm. And then also I had a uh, a listener write in to ask uh, what the link is. Like, is there a link to substance abuse? Um, yes, there is. Uh, now, I'm just going to speak to what I know about the literature with kids and adolescents. Um, but the... So there is a link. I'll just say that. Um, what we know, though, is that uh, if kids and adolescents are properly medicated for ADHD, it it tends to lessen the likelihood they're going to have substance abuse problems. Um, so there is kind of a mediating factor there with a, you know with medication. Um, but uh, unmedicated ADHD, uh, especially yeah, as as um, you know, as kids turn into adults. That can be that can be a problem. They have a higher likelihood of substance abuse, um, reckless behavior, uh, driving fast. You know, all those kind of sensation-seeking activities. Yeah, I had all that stuff, and I feel like <laughs> if I had if I had um, been medicated at least when I was that age, like adolescent, it would have helped a lot. Sure, sure, and a lot of you know, there's this whole. Um, belief system around self-medicating. And, you know, I see a lot of teenagers with ADHD who self-medicate with marijuana, for example. Um, maybe that persists into adulthood or maybe they shift to uh, different substances. But uh, there is some belief that, that, you know, some of those substances are, like I said, self-medicating and kind of helping them self-regulate or, you know, calm their brain a bit. Yeah, I was using that marijuana all day every day pretty much and actually when i got on medication i my intake is just reduced to you know just occasionally recreationally oh that's interesting yeah, yeah. um and then so comorbidity uh this is a really common thing that you see in adhd right like oftentimes you have adhd alongside something else and i know it's kind of hard to differentiate between different things so it's difficult to diagnose so i was just curious like what is the rate of comorbidity Mm, you're going to make me quote statistics. Which well, no, you don't have to. Might I be would... dangerous. <laughs> okay, let's say there's a lot. Um, so the main the main comorbidities that I think of are, and again, I see a lot of kids and adolescents. But uh, learning disorders, there's there's a lot of overlap between ADHD and learning disorders, uh, like dyslexia or um, you know math disorder, dyscalculia. Um, there's a fair amount of overlap with ADHD and autism in the sense that individuals with autism also often meet criteria for ADHD. It doesn't necessarily go the other way, though. Uh, not, not 
not everyone with ADHD will, you know, have autism, obviously. Um, anxiety, depression, those are big ones as well. And like you mentioned, uh, substance use can, can play a role in there also. So there is significant overlap with a number of other mental health concerns that we have to be aware of. I always felt like I had a little bit of like some symptoms of autism, like when, it, especially in reg regards to uh, sensory overload. Mm. Do you see sensory overload uh, with uh, ADHD uh, people at all? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, that's a whole can of worms. Sensory processing as a, just as an area is a lot to tackle, but I can say, yeah, briefly at least that um, sensory issues, we see that in a lot of different, uh, a lot of different disorders, autism, anxiety, uh, ADHD, certainly. Um, so the short answer is, is yes. So that's not surprising to me that, that you may have experienced that. The other piece too, that, that we see a lot that we really have to do a good job of, of assessing and separating is, uh, the social impact of ADHD versus, versus autism. Um, because kids with ADHD who grow into adults, uh, and you may or may not have experienced this, but, you know, there can be some social impact with that, you know, impulsivity and sort of interrupting and maybe having trouble, um, keeping personal boundaries with peers or, or other people, you know, like getting too close or just too intense, you know, so there can be social difficulties with ADHD too. Um, but they're not the same flavor and quality as, as with autism, you know, where those, those kids or adults just like, don't, don't get social interaction. They, they don't have the instruction manual for social interaction. So it's, there's a difference, but they can look the same. And that's why, you know, it's important to, to get a good assessment to kind of separate those. Yeah, I always felt like the differentiation was um, sort of like a blindness to social signals. And, you know, I don't have that. So, um, right. But I wanted to ask, uh, like, when exactly do you think that someone should seek an evaluation for ADHD? Yeah, yeah. I love that question. So, you know, adults can uh, look through the symptom checklist, right, or the list of symptoms. And if it rings true, talk to your doc, you know, if a lot of those ring true. Um, now other signs are if someone, if other people mention it to you, that's, uh, that's a great sign that you might want to get it checked out. Um, and the, the, the biggest thing for me is if you are noticing true impairment in your life, right? So if, if these problems are, really causing trouble in your life? Are you missing deadlines? Are you um, overdrawn on your bank account? Have you missed your bills? Um, are your relationships being impacted by these behaviors? Um, you know, those are all, all good signs that you might want to seek an assessment. Yeah, one thing that helped me, I think, was um, like reading through there's on, on Reddit, other people with ADHD's experiences. It just felt a little bit easier to relate to as opposed to just like reading the DSM, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, not a lot of people outside of our, you know, our field like to read the DSM for <laughs> Yeah. Good point. But yeah, that's great. I mean, the, that feeling of, um, I'm not alone or like you're telling my story, that kind of experience can be really, really powerful. So yeah, Reddit's a great place for that. When you do decide, okay, you know, I want to get an evaluation. Uh, what is the best way to go about finding somewhere to get tested? Like, do you need a referral or... It depends. Um, I'm really glad that you asked about this. Uh, I think that the 
the easiest way to start is probably go to your primary care doc and just say, hey, I've got this going on. I think I want to get tested for ADHD. And then that person can provide a referral if you need it. Um, Not all insurance plans require one by any means, uh, but if you need it, you can get it there. Uh, Your PCP can also rule out any medical concerns that might be getting in the way and masquerading as ADHD. Um, So you can get that taken care of. And your PCP can also hopefully hook you up with a good psychologist, neuropsychologist, um, you know, psychiatrist perhaps, or even a behavioral neurologist that specialize in ADHD and they can facilitate that connection. So you can, you can get a really good assessment. And if all that fails, you can also just search on Google and make sure that you find somebody who specializes in ADHD testing. What would you Google like ADHD testing near me? Yeah, that's exactly what I would do. ADHD specialist near me, ADHD testing. Yeah. Anything like that. Yeah. So, cause my next question was, what do you do if you bring it up to your primary care doctor or psychiatrist and they are dismissive of it? Like, Oh, that's not a real thing. Or you've been fine in your life and they may not realize like, Hey, it's taken me like three times longer to do this stuff, but, uh, search it out yourself. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I would say. And especially, yeah, especially if they are the kind of lone dissenting opinion, like if other people in your life have mentioned it, uh, if you feel like you've read experiences that really fit. Yeah. If they are dismissive, then I would take matters into your own hands and just try to try to make an appointment on your own. So I literally just searched up ADHD assessments near me and I spent maybe a week calling um, different ADHD assessments within the Toronto area, even Ontario. And I continue to go further beyond that because everything is virtual now. Maybe it's a bit of the ADHD intense focus when you're interested in something. <laughs> but I, I kind of went nonstop for a couple of days until I found a good, um, you know, convenient pricing and scheduling that worked best for me. Uh, what is getting tested like? Like uh, what types of tests are used? Uh, just anything related to that? Yeah, yeah. So the evaluation process should be relatively comprehensive. And the reason it's relatively comprehensive is because of those comorbidities that we talked about just a bit ago. This is the way I explain it to people. I say we're not just ruling in ADHD. We are, that's actually kind of easy. What we're doing is ruling out a bunch of other stuff. So we are looking at all aspects of your functioning to figure out if this is really ADHD or if it's any number of other things that might be going on. So what does that look like? Um, It should look like a lengthy clinical interview with you um, where, you know, that person, the clinician should, you know, ask a lot of questions about childhood, um, about your history, uh, about, you know, your life, your medical history, any traumatic experiences, any mood issues. I mean, it really should be pretty thorough. So I always recommend that people bring any records that you can get your hands on to this interview. That can mean like report cards, um, um, any kind of qualitative, you know, description or reports of your behavior, like from your parents or anything like that. Um, so any records, any prior testing, any medication. So that's the first step. He did an initial history intake. So he asked me, you know, starting literally from my childhood experiences and, you know, up until now and everything from how was it learning? How was it dealing with people? How did you feel? So it was 
very comprehensive uh, for several hours. And then we did several questionnaires. So one was on, you know, social anxiety. He didn't specify what they were. Um, so then I didn't focus on those. I just focused on the questions. Some, I think, were social anxiety, skin picking, hyperactivity, uh, and focus. I don't know the exact titles, unfortunately, of those questionnaires, but those were the main ideas. That clinician should also conduct interviews with significant others in your life uh, or what we call collateral interviews um, because we don't just trust you uh, into being an expert on your own experience for better or for worse. We have to get the opinion of others who have interacted with you. So, you know, if you're a younger adult, this might be parents, um, siblings, a significant other like romantic partner, um, even roommates, like your clinician should do some of those collateral interviews to to see you know how other people perceive you i'm sorry because the psychological testing is is not enough on its own right right yeah standard of care suggests that we do all of these things we do the interview we do the testing and we do these collateral interviews with others yeah so they sent him a separate questionnaire asking questions about you know more about focus uh skin picking and uh, hyperactivity mainly along those lines, and then how I dealt with certain situations. Yeah, so that's that's interesting. And I know that because that's like, I guess, the like reporting from uh, somebody close to you. That's what, you know, they want to have the parents and stuff, uh, which is, a, you know, a big deal. But I guess that wasn't really an option with me. Um, like, God, I would have, I guess I could have called my parents, but I feel like they wouldn't have probably like, oh, yeah, you could focus. They focus all the time. Like, yeah. Really? Oh, okay. That's, that's well, different then. Well, I try to explain. I'm like, yeah, only on certain things. Um, but yeah, so oh, actually I, I have a list here of the, the, the kinds of ones. So we did a clinical procedure or clinical interview, a psychosocial history, Connor's adult ADHD rating scales, long version, Brown executive function, attention scales, patient health questionnaire, nine social phobia, inventory, skin picking scale revised. So those were all the ones that we had done formally. Okay. And I am not familiar with, uh, the skin picking thing. Could you explain yeah, it? Yeah, that, that one was a little weird for me, actually. Um, so apparently, people with ADHD tend to pick their skin pretty often, either maybe scalp or something like fidgety. So yeah. I think uh, he was looking for any severities to the point where like maybe I had scars or uh, I, I, I had the urges and the compulsion to skin pick or touch my face or my body, uh, which I, I sometimes do. Oddly enough, um, but apparently, yeah, it is part of ADHD as well. Yeah, I, I do it with my cuticles. Like I'm just realizing <laughs> now, I didn't realize that was a thing. You know, typically, uh, we'll give you some measure of intelligence that always freaks people out. So um, I like to substitute that instead of saying intelligence, we just call it like cognitive ability. Okay, so we look at what your brain is up to in a bunch of different domains. Um, we might. Uh, test some of your academic skills, depending on if that's a relevant issue for you. We'll probably do some testing around executive functioning, uh, attention, memory, uh, all sorts of cognitive domains to see what your brain is up to. We'll also do some personality assessment, most likely. Uh, it sounds like you've had some of that experience from, <laughs> right. from what you told me, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we'll typically do a personality measure um, and we'll also do uh, we'll administer some behavior rating scales, which are 
standardized, uh, well-normed questionnaires that would compare your behaviors to other individuals, your age and, and gender and, and so forth. And we'll give those rating scales both to you and to any of those um, collateral folks who might be involved in your life so we can get real you know, solid data from them about uh, what they're seeing as well. And then we pull all that together and try to synthesize all that info and uh, yeah, figure out if it's ADHD or something else or both or anything else we might need to talk about. All right, let's take a quick mental health break. Be right back. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A dot Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Welcome back to Prodigy. For more info, visit the episode page at ProdigyPodcast.com. I wanted to ask if, like, how accurate the tests are. Like, is it possible or what is the likelihood for a person with or without ADHD to get an incorrect diagnosis, possibly maybe because of the testing environment? Mm, that's a really complicated question, to be honest. Um, it's a great one, but it's also complicated. Um, the short answer is that depending on the battery, so the the tests that we give you and the process you go through, um, it is possible certainly to come up as a you know a false positive, let's say, uh, where it looks like you have ADHD, but it's actually something else. The trouble is that we don't have a clear uh, well-defined uh, profile, let's say, that says, hey, this is ADHD. So we can't look at like a specific pattern of scores on the cognitive testing that it, that very clearly says this is ADHD. That's why we have to um, integrate all of this information that we get from the interviews with you and other people and the rating scales and really pull all of that together and see, see how the whole picture looks. Um, so it is possible, certainly. What I thought it was is that the difference between my intelligence and my working memory, like there was mm -hmm. a huge gap there. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought that that was like a really what you guys possibly looked for. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely I, I'm not, I don't want to throw that out by any means. Um, that is often present. So there's that, you know, again, gap between kind of overall intelligence and working memory or processing speed we found, you know, uh, uh, implicated with attention. Um, so we will look for gaps like that. Um, or relative weaknesses in your profile. And it's not 
100% definitive by any means. Like just because someone has low working memory doesn't necessarily mean they have ADHD. There are other things that might contribute to low working memory. But it's a, I mean, it's a sign. Is the reverse also true? Like you could have a good working memory and um, have ADHD? Yes. Yes. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. It is fascinating. It makes our jobs a little tougher. Yeah. <laughs> so it took about maybe another two to three weeks for him to compile a report for me. Uh, it was a written report, uh, formalized, and he had emailed it to me. And at the same time, we had another about hour and a half um, formal video interview where he just told me about the results that he had concluded based on his findings. And, you know, he told me everything from the questionnaire, anything that he had, he had observed and even anything kind of off off the record. Like, oh, I notice you have a bit of these tendencies. It's good to work on these. He was just a really nice, I think, psychologist to do that. But um, yeah, that, that's how it would happen. Once you get a diagnosis, what should you then do? You should walk away with some pretty, pretty solid recommendations from that clinician as to what to do next. Most likely, it would involve a consult for medication. Um, we still think medication is pretty effective at you know helping with ADHD symptoms. So they would likely recommend medication, uh, and they would likely recommend some coaching or some cognitive behavioral therapy to teach some of those skills that I mentioned earlier. He said that I would probably benefit from therapy, specifically CBT, and I would you know, just on his advice that medication would largely um, help me with my focus issues. That clinician might uh, give you referrals for, you know, for trusted colleagues in the area for you to, to go to. Uh, but if not, you can, of course, search them out on your own. Another part that I like to recommend to folks is just uh, psychoeducation or like self-learning about ADHD. So, you know, that's where you get on the websites, you know, there's Attitude, um, there's, I mean, even Reddit could be fine. Uh, you know, there, there are some reputable sites out there and books, of course, that will help you learn as much as possible about ADHD and what it looks like for you. And that psychoeducation piece, that learning component can be really, really powerful in helping people move forward. Yeah, it seems like it's important to understand, you know, understand it, especially related to yourself. Um, I'll put those resources on the website. Um, I just had one more question that I don't want to forget to ask, but uh, like, do you, do you see a difference between genders um, or between you know, like between male, how it manifests it between genders. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, first of all, we know that men or males are diagnosed more frequently than women. Um, I think historically, here's the thing. I don't know that, that it necessarily presents differently in girls than boys. Um, there may be, you know, some some evidence that girls trend more toward uh, inattentive symptoms from the beginning with less of that hyperactivity and, and impulsivity, certainly. Um, but I don't know that it's so much that the presentation is vastly different. It's that people aren't looking out for ADHD in girls as much as they are in boys. Does that make sense? Where, yeah, so people just aren't, you know, it's like we see what we're looking for. And, and I think that, uh, boys, <laughs> we are looking for boys with ADHD, like poorly behaved boys in school are 
a lot more noticeable. And it's easier to attribute that to something like ADHD. Whereas, you know, girls who are kind of, you know, hyper energetic or talkative, um, you know, they might be more likely to get labeled uh, as precocious or, uh, you know, lots of personality or assertive or something like that. Um, and it's, it's less likely to be seen as a behavior problem. So, so yeah, I think it's a little of both. Um, I think girls do tend to fly under the radar a bit because they, they show up as a little more inattentive, but for the ones who are more hyperactive, uh, I don't know that they get recognized as much as boys do because teachers and parents just aren't really looking for it. Yeah. When I just think of a stereotypical child with ADHD in my mind, it's always just a boy. It's always a boy. Yeah. Always. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is there anything that I missed that you think we should cover? I think the main thing is that I hope people might take away is just that, uh, you know, if you think it's going on, um, there are definitely options out there to to look into it. And it is a very um, treatable uh, concern. You know, that's the good news. I always say, you know, to parents, like the good news is that we know a lot about this and there's uh, there's there are many options to. Uh, to help you. So uh, don't lose hope. You know, it's never too late. We work with adults, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s who are just getting diagnosed for the first time. So it's never too late and there's plenty of options to, to help you. Yeah, I'm going to send my dad over to you. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah, it's, it, the one troubling thing is it feels like because of ADHD, it's hard to actually take the first step. Uh, at least it was for me. Right. Right. Well, I'm curious if I could turn the tables and ask you what, from your standpoint, would have made it easier to access an evaluation or services or whatever would have been the first step for you? Yeah, if I could have just reached out to a testing facility first thing and just called and made an appointment, but it felt like like I would have to find a psychiatrist and then finding get an appointment with a psychiatrist can be difficult. So yeah. hard. Yeah, they'll be mm -hmm. like, oh, it's we have an appointment. Sure, three months out. And I'm like, okay, like three months out is like basically a lifetime in, in my mm -hmm. mind, you know? Oh, sure, sure. Well, yeah, maybe that's important to highlight again just to say that you don't, you know, a lot of insurance plans do not require a referral. So if you can reach out on your own um, and make an appointment with, a, you know, an assessment clinician, uh, that's a great, that's a great step. You may not have to go through a physician first. So after Leslie was diagnosed, she went back to her same primary care physician, and he said, okay, well, drop off the report, and we'll submit it to a psychiatrist, and they'll get back to you in the next six months. Six months! So her partner recommended his family physician, who got her an appointment in a few weeks. The process still took a few more months because she got bounced around to a few different psychiatrists, but she eventually did get the treatment that worked for her. Again, Leslie is in Canada, and your experience may be different based on your location. Dr. Jeremy Sharp is a consultant who helps grow mental health clinics. He's also an excellent speaker on all subjects related to mental health. He's really been a wonderful guest, and I highly recommend him for your organization. You can find more info at thetestingpsychologist.com. Leslie is working on a book about people's experience during the pandemic, and has interviewed people all over the world, including me. You can find her on Instagram at leslie.q. That's spelled L-E-S-L-Y dot C-U-E. As usual, all links will be on the episode page at prodigypodcast.com. Prodigy was created and produced by me, Lowell Berlanti. 
The executive producer is Tyler Klang. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to help out, you can follow the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever, or share an episode with a friend. I also really appreciate it when listeners send me messages and I respond to everyone. Prodigy is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.